This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And in this episode, we're back to our face-off thread. We've already covered the movies of Reese Witherspoon and Robin Williams, so we're going to be looking at another iconic acting talent from down the years. It's the one and only Mr. Patrick Swayze. stated at the beginning of this episode we are going to be looking at two contrasting films from the late great Patrick Swayze. He is one of the most fascinating actors that came out of Hollywood in the 20th century and he made lots of versatile movies. Not only was he a fantastic actor but also an incredible dancer as well and a stuntman to a degree so we're going to be exploring all that in this episode. So to begin with, we couldn't talk about Patrick Swayze without looking at one of his most iconic films and probably the film that really kind of catapulted him into like as into like a popular actor, I suppose, which is, of course, 1987's Dirty Dancing. So I have a confession. As you may know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I'm not a huge fan of the romantic genre. But Dirty Dancing is a film that I absolutely love. It was a movie that I decided just to watch because it was such an iconic film and I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Did not expect to love it as much as I do. Is it a bit of a guilty pleasure for me? Probably. But it's all right to like what you like, so I don't know if guilty pleasure is the right word. So Dirty Dancing, as I said, was released in 1987 and directed by Emile Ardolino, um, who went on to direct Three Men and a Little Lady, which is one of my favourite movies also, and also Sister Act, which I love as well. And it's an autobiographical film written by Eleanor Bergstein, who basically based this whole concept, this whole movie on her own life experience. So it's very much kind of set in sort of a state of realism to a point. But there are some kind of uh, strange cinematic choices in this film that we will get into. So Eleanor Bergstein originally pitched the script to MGM um, in this kind of mid 80s, but changes to management at the studio put the film in development hell. And it wasn't until later on when a distributor called Vestron Pictures eventually released the film. 
They were best known for releasing uh, this film and were a spin-off um, of their own video distribution company, Western Video. They went out of business in 1991 due to bankruptcy and now Lionsgate owned the rights to their entire library. So if you watch Dirty Dancing now, you will get the Lionsgate logo at the start. Normally I associate that with the Saw film, so um, it is quite uh, different. <laughs> and it was also choreographed by Kenny Ortega, who um, went on to direct Hocus Pocus, High School Musical and did some episodes of Gilmore Girls also. And the film, of course, stars Kelly Bishop who was also in uh, Gilmore Girls. We're going to get into our thoughts on this movie and particularly Patrick Swayze's performance. Um, for me, his performance does make the film. I don't think this film would be as well-received without him. He's very charismatic. He gives a really, really strong performance in this. He is the kind of draw to this film for me. But yeah, it's one that it does have a story to it, but it's very kind of slice of life as well. And then a little bit, music video-esque with all its well kind of placed musical numbers yeah the soundtrack's a bit arch really it, it is trying to push the 60s angle and i think it's not totally to its detriment that the soundtrack kind of overwhelms it in places it is trying to be that sort of what we probably think of now as an almost like a jukebox musical without many musical numbers actually in it <laughs> Dirty Dance is a weird one for me because I do remember the word amount about seeing this movie and I didn't get to see it at the pictures, even though I was a big fan of Vestron's output because Vestron Video put some great stuff out in the 80s. I think they did From Beyond. They certainly did Hands of Steel, which was uh, Daniel Green's movie. We were talking about that in the Elvira segment. I was a big fan of Vestron. It was a strange detour for them to take considering how they were in the, well, I wouldn't say the exploitation video market, but they did a lot of action thrillers and horrors, and Dirty Dancing seemed a bit of a left turn for Vestron. But I guess, in the end, it was a good decision. It probably also indirectly led to Vestron's downfall, because Vestron pushed themselves further and further into the sort of financial mire by taking more and more risks, and I guess they thought that Maybe every picture was going to do a dirty dancing and turn a load of profit. It's not really the case in cinema. But back to the movie itself. With my particular background, the um, perception would be that I absolutely hate dirty dancing because I'm very much of a horror fan. And I do like the odd rom-com, but they've got to be something a bit special. Funnily enough, I don't hate dirty dancing. I think it's a strange movie on many levels because... I think it doesn't really push any of the elements particularly hard. It's got a bit of comedy in it, but it's not all that funny. It's got a bit of drama in it, but it doesn't really over-egg that either, despite the fact that it's got a fairly... Well, I wouldn't say risque, but it's got a fairly well-handled abortion subplot, which you wouldn't think would be present in this sort of movie. And it's got a good 60s setting and it's got great acting. It's got Jerry Orbach as uh, Jennifer Grey's dad. He's great in it. And as you say, Patrick Swayze, a lot of the movie rests on his shoulders and he has to carry a lot of the dramatic weight and on occasion sell some fairly terrible dialogue. But it's to his credit that you're actually more drawn to Patrick Swayze's performance than trying to point out 
the dreadful script on occasion that he's called upon to recite. And of course, he is a great dancer. The dance sequences again. I mean, there's there's quite a lot of dancing in it, but it's quite downplayed as well. So it's kind of a dance movie where where the dancing isn't as spectacular as some of the other movies that we might have covered in this. I mean, at least you get to see most of the dance moves in this. If something like Xanadu, where everybody's cut off at the waist and you can't really see what's going on. So it is on one level a crowd pleaser, but I also struggle to find out why it was such a massive hit because it's a nice movie but is it a proper feel-good movie there's quite a lot of downer stuff in it before you get to the feel-good stuff so I don't know maybe it just landed at the right time and of course if you're going to ignore all the plot points and you fancy Patrick Swayze there's quite a lot of Patrick Swayze in this I definitely think he is the main selling point. I think that's probably why it became so popular. And I think that a lot of people just bought into the the romance um, of it. Interestingly, it was aimed mainly at teenagers, but ended up appealing more to an adult audience. It was actually listed by Sky Movies as the number one um, film on a women's most watched films list. So... I don't want to say that like just women would like this film, but I don't really know many men who love it either. I've never really spoken to a guy who's like, yeah, I love Dirty Dancing, which, um, as I say, I don't want to like stereotype and be like, this is such like a woman's film. But I guess obviously it's written by a woman. It's all very tasteful in terms of how the romance develops between the older Patrick Swayze and the younger baby played by Jennifer Grey. So it's obviously like she's, um, late teens and he's that bit older but it's yeah it's not done in like a really creepy predatory way which it could have gone in that angle but it, it's done really well so I, I can understand why there's that appeal for for women but yeah as I say if it hadn't starred Patrick Swayze I honestly don't believe it would have been as successful I think why I probably enjoyed it more than I was expecting to is because it does operate on a deeper level so we're going to go on to about the abortion subplot which for me when I first watched it I wasn't expecting that plot point to be in there and it's quite a frustrating plot point as well because in the movie it's Patrick Swayze's um, dance partner who um, is pregnant and she makes a decision to have an abortion and of course back then in the 60s um, I don't think abortion was legal so that's why she has to go to this kind of butcher doctor in order to um obviously get rid of her baby but yeah it's um apparently been praised by abortion rights advocates because of its cinematic portrayal um on the subject matter it's seen as a more compassionate depiction um and because it concerns itself more with the women's health and ability to have children in the future rather than demonizing this character for her choice so um it's yeah it's a very interesting one but it's frustrating in the sense that Throughout the movie, Baby's dad and other characters assume that it's Patrick Swayze that has got his partner in trouble, and he and it's basically um, he needs to deal with it. It's all his problem. He and all this, but if you've watched the movie, there'll be a spoiler. It's not his fault that any of this has happened. He is just her friend, and it's this creepy waiter guy called Robbie who um, is the one to blame, and um, he is a, like absolutely abhorrent character. Um, as you'll see, because he doesn't take responsibility for um, what what he's done for his actions, and he do- isn't willing to help this poor woman 
and then he goes about trying to prey on baby sister as well so this guy is really creepy but the whole um say romance with patrick swayze as johnny and baby that's done very tastefully and very well portrayed so as i said it could have gone the other way so there there is elements of that and i think that is why people are just so drawn to it going back to the soundtrack I like the soundtrack. It is such a good soundtrack. It's very feel-good. It's one that you can easily listen to, but it is very jarring because we are in the 1960s. This is a 60s period piece, but we have a lot of 1980s sounding music in it. So we've got, of course, Hungry Eyes, which is one of the most iconic scenes in the film, which we'll get more into that in a bit. And also I've Had the Time of My Life at the end. That is, again, very 80s inspired. And what struck me um, is when you have to kind of throw the plausibility out of the window is when when Baby and Johnny go to perform this dance at another hotel um, in place of Johnny's partner because of the abortion. They do the mambo and it's set to this specific um, instrumental music. And then as the finale happens... For some reason, they're both so well rehearsed in dancing to the same routine to I've had the time of my life where they've had no practice whatsoever. I mean, maybe they did off screen and that wasn't actually pointed out. But not only that, the rest of the hotel guests kind of join in. It's not quite she's all that level of perfectly choreographed dancing, but it's just like how they all kind of, you know, are kind of pitch perfect at this routine behind Patrick Swayze. It's just all a bit... You know, it goes into that musical territory without, like, being an actual musical. It's weird, because I said, you've got these elements of realism and serious subjects in this film, but then you basically do have musical elements. So that's what's... Um, yeah, that's why it is It is a bit of an odd one. Yeah, it is, I agree. I mean, the ending where the choreography is just perfect, you know, they couldn't put two steps together earlier in the movie... I mean, it's that kind of element of like love conquers all fantasy type of ending where everything's just perfect and everybody's dance moves are great and everybody's having a great time. But you're right, considering what's gone before, the ending, I know they wanted to have a really feel-good ending, but it seems a little bit out of place. If there'd have been a slightly different ending, they could have they could have included some dance in the ending, but it's such a precisely choreographed number at the end. And I'm not saying it doesn't look great on the screen, but after what's gone before, you kind of think, well, where did this come from? They're giving the audience what they want at the end, basically. Whether it actually fits with the rest of the movie is open to question. You get that sort of ending, but you get, as you say, you get Robbie, the character who's such a creep throughout the movie. So you've got very realistic depictions of guys who prey on women. And then you've got this amazingly sort of almost soft focus fantasy ending at the end of it all, which just seems, I don't know, they seem really at odds with each other. But I think Dirty Dancing is one of those movies that wants to have its cake and eat it too. And it gets away with it somehow. Because even at the end, even if you're sitting there thinking, this is such a jarring ending, part of you also thinks, well... I kind of wanted it to end this way as well. So it's playing around with your emotions, even though the fact that you're thinking like, you know, I want I want Robbie to get a really bad comeuppance and there's no way that Patrick Swayze's character can win over the very, very middle class family that Baby comes from. 
but by the end you're just thinking no no i just want i just want everything to be all right at the end of this movie and it's just got this odd spell that it seems to cast on its audience as well for a movie that's got a really compassionate and responsible treatment of what the trials are of a woman having to go through an abortion in the 60s that seems to be almost from a different movie considering where the plot ends up but even then it all seems to weave together and in other movies if you'd got so many elements pulling it pulling against each other the movie would generally be a disaster and you'd be just thinking well this movie needs to decide whether it wants to be one thing or another but again Dirty Dancing seems to be able to pull this trick of changing tone and changing it's comedic one minute it's dramatic the next minute and i think possibly because it's not going for the huge moments and it's all quite low-key and it's all done in a very sweet and unassuming way that it gets away with it by the end yeah and i think what's interesting about it as well is the plot you think it's gonna go with it doesn't it it just changes gears so often so um you think it might get like this kind of footloose vibe at the beginning where baby discovers this underground um like dance like sort of beehive almost where people are thrusting all over each other it's all very sexualized and there's a lot of shots of crotch areas and that it's very very raunchy and you think it's going to be this type of movie where this whole um separate scene is going to get uncovered by the wholesome well they they sort of portrayed as the wholesome hotel staff where they kind of knock because obviously we've got robbie and everyone's a bit corrupt and you think it will go down that route and they'll try and like ban this kind of subculture of dirty dancing but it, it kind of like glosses over that you know we get that kind of setup and then it's more to do with the abortion story bringing baby and johnny together and it has a lot of montages in it as well and that's when the use of the soundtrack comes in so hungry eyes it's a very iconic scene and it was all based on improvisation so um the cast were encouraged to improvise as much as possible they keep the cameras rolling and i think that's why it does have this sense of authenticity to it so the scene where they are rehearsing the routine and patrick swayze is running his arm down her arm as well like in that scene and um, she starts to laugh. Well, that really frustrated Patrick Swayze. He was getting so fed up. And that reaction where he just like looks really pissed off is <laughs> utterly genuine. Again, that has become one of the most iconic scenes. It fits with his character because his character is getting really fed up because he's in this situation where he's got to train this, well, untrained, like, well, I don't even think she's a dancer. She just learns how to dance throughout the movie. And he's got that frustration because he's got a limited time and then um, they've got to pull off this um, big dance number at this other hotel. So it's kind of like the clock is against them. So it kind of goes down that route then. And then it focuses more on the love story and focuses on how, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. I think that's the main message of the film. Don't judge a book by its cover and how um, things aren't always what they seem. So it focuses on baby coming of age and accepting what is going on around her but also um having that conflict of like trying to you know be honest with her father and make him understand and not be so judgmental and it all gets resolved you know in a nicely 
tied up package at the end but yeah it just as i say it veers off but there's just something so entrancing about this film and something so enjoyable and i think as i say it is patrick swayze it's definitely his performance and his screen presence it, like he makes an entrance in this movie as soon as like he comes on screen he's got his shades on his jacket over his shoulder he's kind of struts in and he's like really cool and confident and you think at first oh this guy's going to be really cocky but he's just got this deeper level to him and he's like very sensitive and he's been through a lot in his life. He's struggling to make ends meet and that's why he's reliant on this job. So you, you find out a lot. I think the characterization is pretty strong in this film. So, you know, I have to give it that, but again, it is this complete sort of cult movie. It has become this cult movie because it's got certain beats to it and you're just waiting for certain lines to be said or, you know, certain soundtrack moments as well. But of course, talking about lines, we have to talk <laughs> about the iconic line, no difference baby in a corner, because that's how it sounds. Yeah. How did this line become so iconic? <laughs> yeah, it's weird that because you'd expect that there'd be a big build up to it and that, you know, it'd be, there'd be some sort of emphasis on it, but it's almost thrown away. In fact, you know, as you say, it's, it's almost mumbled. He kind of piles into this room. He sees her sitting next to the wall with the rest of the family. And you're right, he kind of goes up and goes, nobody was very in the corner. It's like, was that the line? It's, uh, uh, but on one level, that line is utterly ridiculous, but it's also very iconic. Maybe because it's so ridiculous, it's become iconic. Baby herself, as a character, she's a bit of an activist, so she's nobody's fool. So they've cast somebody who's a strong woman in the lead. At least she doesn't take any crap from anybody. Even when... Johnny is trying to assert his authority on her. She's definitely not going to be pushed around by him. She'll take instruction because she knows he's an expert on the dance floor. But if he's ever coming close to crossing a line, then she's having none of that. So, as you say, the characterizations in this are surprisingly good. Even if the the movie is quite a simplistic plot and, and it's just a basically a, a sweet coming-of-age story. But at least they've gone down that route of creating some characters that have got a bit of depth and that you can side with. Uh, Of course, you've got the... Robbie's a bit of a pantomime villain, but you've got to have somebody to hate in this movie because it would just be like an onslaught of sweetness. Hungry Eyes, for, uh, for instance. I mean, the montage is quite cleverly put together and the fact that it is improvised gives it a bit more pep. I hate that song. I really hate that song. It's like being held down and having someone pour a bag of sugar down your throat for three minutes, (laughs) hungry eyes. I just cannot get on with that song. The Bill uh, Medley, Jennifer Walls, I have had the time of life. Good song. Absolutely no problem with that song. But as soon as the opening bars of Hungry Eyes kick in, I thought, oh, God, here we go again. It's this song. Now, I don't normally do karaoke, but next time there's a celluloid karaoke that I can attend, mm. um, I think I will be tempted to uh, put a request in for myself just for that song. <laughs> <laughs> we'll what see. For, I probably for... will change my mind. Yeah. But... No, no, that, that'll, be, that'll be worth it. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, mean I think, I think well, the one good thing about Hungry Eyes is that I would appreciate the karaoke versions of it more than the original because... I don't know. I mean, I'm sorry, Eric, but the way it's sung, it's just, it's like nails down a blackboard to me. I reckon that 
it's appeared on all sorts of places, Hungry Eyes. I wouldn't be surprised if people have had it at weddings and all sorts of functions and things like that. But I just I just can't get on with it. I don't know what it is about that song. Maybe it is it's because it's so twee and it's so sugary that I just I just can't get past it. It doesn't ruin the sequence. I mean, it does get what it's supposed to be doing on that sequence over without the music completely overriding it and spoiling it. But but yeah, it's just it's just a it's a weird sticking point for me. Hungry eyes. They play it still quite a lot because if you listen to any kind of eighties radio station, one of the unwritten rules of eighties radio stations is that like every couple of hours you have to play Hungry Eyes, so that people get reminded of dirty dancing. But even so, I mean, I've heard it loads and loads of times since it came out, and it doesn't get any better. I, <laughs> I do enjoy the sleazy sax, though. You've got a bit of sleazy sax in 80s movies. Yeah. Even though this is a 60s movie, but, you know, we've, we've been over that. It's a it's a very, as I say, jarring choice for the from the filmmakers, but who, who knows? It, it, it somehow works, even though it is a bit strange when you really think about it. It's like the rest of the movie. I mean, it's... it's... Almost like a Frankenstein's monster of a movie, does he dancing? They've thought of different elements which would work in different movies and glued them together, and somehow it moves around and it's it's yeah it's like it is like Frankenstein's monster. You know, you think that there's no way it's going to get any life at all, but you give it a bit of a jolt and it's like lumbering around and then it's actually sort of getting quite adept at doing certain things. So I think Dirty Dancing is put together with a lot more skill than than Frankenstein's monster but you get the general idea it's just a load of elements glued together you just if you saw it on paper you just think this won't work and then when you actually see it you just think well it does work but I'm still not sure how it did it's a strange movie on so many levels and yet it's perfectly enjoyable yeah, so it was actually my husband Phil's first viewing of Dirty Dancing ever before we recorded this podcast. And I think he was very amused by certain elements in it. So it's more kind of the filler content that was making him laugh. Like at the beginning, um, when they start show- showcasing like, the entertainment, there's like an older gentleman, he's like a conductor, and he does this really like random little dance. And it's just kind of like there. And it kind of just takes you out of it for a moment because you're like, what is this? And then the other bit is um, just before the famous uh, Love is Strange sequence, um, which again was improvised, there's just a shot of these people like sort of bunny hopping on the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really silly. But... Yeah, that's just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I think they were trying to throw that in as to say like, well, anything goes at this summer camp. There's lots and lots of strange things going on. It's If you want to do sports, you can do sports. If you want to swim, you can swim. If you want to hop around like a bunny, you can hop around like a bunny. So I think it was that kind of the different world that they escaped to in these summer camps. But it is strange when you see some of these things going on. But again, you see these things in other movies and you just think, why is that there? And yet in Dirty Dancing, you just think, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) And then you have like the talent show and then the the sisters awful singing. Yeah. <laughs> and then the Kellerman's anthem at the end where they're all singing. I mean, I would just be like, what the hell have I walked into if I was at like a holiday resort and there was like a big sing song at the end? Yeah, it'd be quite amusing. But I think, you know, as you say, this is unintentional comedy. I don't know if it was intended to make the audience laugh, but it, it sure does because it's so random in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I don't doubt that these summer camps were exactly like that in the 60s. But I guess to people like us, that sort of entertainment just seems very anachronistic right now because it's like, why, why would you go and watch this happening? But I guess different strokes for different folks. Diff- very different time. And it's quite a fascinating glimpse of what was going on in the 60s for people who had a little bit of money and took the summer off. So it's something that I don't think translates very well to the UK of the 60s because we had we had different kinds of holiday camps. I don't think they were as glossy and as um, glitzy as Kellerman's. Even though Kellerman's isn't that glossy and glitzy, I think it's probably got quite a few points over things like Pontins and Butlins were over here in, <laughs> in the 60s. But again, it's kind of shining a light on an era that a lot of people may not have had a lot of knowledge of. Is it a historical artifact that he answered? It's a it's a weird one, but I mean, I guess it's got some kind of value to how life was functioning back then. Yeah, especially as it is an autobiographical film as well. So um, Anna Bergstein's like drawing on her own experience, and I believe like the whole romance story is is based on. Um, her own romance encounter that she had at a holiday camp involving dancing. So, yeah, I think it's very, very much sort of maybe a fantastical version of her own life. I, you know, I don't know if that's fair to say or not. But this movie has a legacy, and I think it's about time we talk about the legacy. So, it was one of the highest grossing films of 1987. It earned $170 million worldwide. It was the number one video rental of 1988. And when I wrote down this fact, I was thinking, I wonder if Darren rented this out or did he swerve it and go for um, some sort of bad taste horror movie instead? I believe that this movie was rented in our household. I wasn't the one who rented it, but I am pretty sure we rented this movie. (laughs) Brilliant. So um, Patrick Swayze received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1997 on the film's 10-year anniversary. As of 2005, it was um, selling a million DVDs per year, with over 10 million copies sold by 2007, by the time the film was 20 years old. It's continued um, in many other forms. So um, there was actually a TV series released um, about a year after the movie, um, different actors. Um, I've never seen it. I only recently found out there was a TV show. I've seen it. I've oh, my s- God. Tell me everything. I've seen the TV show, and all I can say is I'm really sorry, but it's fucking terrible. They've tried to recapture the magic of the movie, uh, but it just really doesn't work. I mean, I think as a 100-minute capsule, it's great, but when they try to step out of that and expand it into a universe, like so many other things that should have stayed on the big screen, it just doesn't work. It's... I know why they tried to do it, because lots of things that were successful at the cinema, they think, oh, well, that would work as a TV series. Very few of them do. I mean, there are lots and lots of bad movie spin-offs in TV. This, unfortunately, is one of the worst. Yeah, I'm quite tempted to seek it out just to oh, see the terrible. Oh, you, sh- you should. Yes, you really <laughs> should. Yeah. I think it's because I really do love the movie so much. I've never really wanted to see anything else to do with it. So another example is the prequel, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, which was released in 2004. I've never seen it. I have seen the clip of Patrick Swayze, though. 
Um, he cameos in it as a dance instructor, and he was paid $5 million for that very brief cameo. And I believe Havana Nights is set in the 1950s, but I'm, again, I haven't watched the movie, so I can't really comment on its quality or lack of. I don't know. I remember seeing it very late night. I think it was BBC Friday night. And I cannot really speak as to its quality because I'm pretty sure it was when I came back from the pub and I was very drunk and I don't remember an awful lot about it. So I don't think it's fair for me to review it. But if I was drunk and didn't remember anything about Havana Nights, I either fell asleep during it or there's nothing memorable in it. But I don't remember hating it. I don't remember loving it. I don't remember anything about it pretty much. It was just like one of those movies I rolled back from the pub late on Friday. It was like, oh, what's on? Oh, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Well, fine, I can just sit and watch this. I don't think that's going to go on uh, any sort of movie review site with me rolling up and saying, oh, by the way, I watched this when I was pissed. Don't remember anything about it. <laughs> if you'd like us to cover it, let us know. And I'm sure um, that would give us a reason to both watch it because otherwise we probably wouldn't. One Dirty Dancing legacy I have seen is the classic story on stage, which was um, at London's West End and is actually still currently on tour. So I've seen the, the show version of it twice. Um, it was originally, I think, originated in Australia in 2004 to begin with, and then went to London's West End in 2006, and it had the highest pre-sale of tickets in London's history. So I saw it probably about 10 years ago, so it was quite well established in um, on the West End at that point. I really enjoyed it on the first time I watched it. Then I went to see it on tour um, a few years later and I was sorely disappointed. Um, the production I saw was very flat. And one thing I will say, it is so hard to recreate Patrick Swayze's performance. And no offence to any actors out there that have portrayed the role of Johnny Castle. I just can't get past it being Patrick Swayze. I think it is his role and he's the only one that can do it really well. And it was the kind of show where the bit where Johnny takes his shirt off, all the women in the audience start like screaming and I'm just there like, oh, for <laughs> goodness sake, this is just not not my thing. And then interestingly, both of us um, realised that Dirty Dancing had been remade in 2017, which was um, 30 years after the original film. It aired on ABC and it was kind of marketed as one of like TV event of the year. I think they've done a few of them. They've done Rocky Horror, which I won't touch with the barge <laughs> because again, that movie is sacred to me. But yeah, Dirty Dancing 2017, it starred um, Abigail Breslin as Baby and Nicole Scherzinger as Penny, I believe in it. But it was critically panned. I saw a brief trailer for it on YouTube and I believe they've actually made it into a musical. Maybe. I mean, I've seen the trailer as well, but that's all I've seen. I, I watched the 30 seconds of it and then had to scrub my eyes after it <laughs> because I just thought, you know, I can't, I can't be doing with this. Life's too short. You know, I've already seen the original, so what would I need to see this one for? Going back to Swayze, I mean, the fact that not many people can portray Johnny Castle in the way he can. Basically, that's why Patrick Swayze is a movie star and many of us are not because he's got that charisma that kind of soaks up everything around him on the screen and it's hard to define in a particular actor as to what makes somebody a movie star but whatever that is Patrick Swayze certainly had it because when he's on screen pretty much all your attention is focused on his direction 
That's why they pay these people the big bucks. That's why they appear in things like Dirty Dancing and well, Point Break, obviously, as we're going to go on to discuss. I mean, Dirty Dancing, it's, it's a good example of the little film that could because it was made for not a huge amount of money. I don't think they expected it to turn a particular profit. I don't think they thought it was going to be anything like the smash it was. But that's what makes movies interesting. It's nice to see movies that are not geared to be two hours of CGI and explosions and special effects actually doing well at the box office. You know, it doesn't happen an awful lot, but when it does, even if it's the sort of movie that you wouldn't normally go to see, it's nice to see a little indie production succeed in the way it did. I mean, most guys will think, oh, I'd never touch Dirty Dancing with a barge pole. It's like, yeah, well, maybe not. But lots of people decided to go and see it. And it was the fact that it was an unassuming and entertaining movie that chimed with a lot of people that meant that, I mean, what did you say? It was selling, what, one million DVDs a year? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, all the different special editions and that. I think for me, it's one of those comfort movies. It's one you can put on and you'll um, enjoy it every time. It's so easy to watch. It's not a hardship and it's one that, you know, it has those feel good elements. So it'll put you in a good, it'll uplift you to a point once you got past the kind of more serious subject matters in the film. You know, as it's very tragic how Patrick Swayze did pass away um, at quite a young age of pancreatic cancer. The hotel where Dirty Dancing was filmed and where the lake was, they have drained that lake now. And there is actually a stone there in memory of Patrick Swayze, which I think is absolutely wonderful that they've done that. So they've commemorated his memory there. So I think that's that's lovely. So, yeah, Dirty Dancing is an audience film. It's a total crowd pleaser. IMDb rates it 7 out of 10, which I think is pretty fair. It's pretty high. Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 90%. So I'm not surprised there. And it has a 69% tomato meter. 90% is pretty good going for Rotten Tomatoes audience because they're notoriously picky about movies there are certain movies on there which i think how is it scoring so such a low at a low level like that but you know the the public has spoken 90 percent definitely and i think this film will forever be popular i don't think it's gonna die off quietly anytime soon and as i say it's still on tour so if you do fancy going to the theater Obviously, um, I think everyone needs a bit of a pick-me-up and a bit of feel-good entertainment. So if Dirty Dancing is in a city near you, maybe go and uh, check it out and um, have the time of your life. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Knew that was coming. And for the second movie in our Patrick Swayze face-off, we're going back to 1991 for the action thriller Point Break, 
directed by Catherine Bigelow. Now, listeners to this podcast will know we've had quite a few synopses provided to us by the amazing Nick Reganus over the last few weeks. He does a lot of shark movies, but he does other movies as well. Now, would it be too much to ask that Nick has provided a synopsis for Point Break? He certainly has, and this movie is also connected to the ocean, so I think we've struck gold here to see that he has written a synopsis for IMDb. So I will just read out Nick Reganus's words for you once again. Hope I do them justice. A string of systematic bank robberies by a daring gang of thieves who name themselves the ex-presidents terrorise sun-drenched Southern California as the rubber-masked criminals act fast without leaving a trace, right under the nose of the police. Under those circumstances, after following up on a lead, the clean-cut and inexperienced FBI agent Johnny Utah goes undercover to infiltrate the local surfing community and extract information from his surf tutor, Tyler. Before long, as Johnny gets accepted into the group, he will befriend Bodie, the mystic and enigmatic surf leader, who teaches him not only how to catch the perfect wave, but also how to find a new meaning in life. Inevitably, Johnny walks a thin line. How far will he go without blowing his cover? I think that's a fantastic synopsis. Sums it up perfectly. No spoilers. Yep. That's excellent work as always. Yep. Top job, Nick. Just sums up exactly what you're going to get from this movie without blowing any of the major plot points. So, great job. You can kind of see where Point Break is going from the start by having its main character called Johnny Utah. So, I mean, yes, it's a serious movie and it's got lots and lots of serious posturing in it. But at the heart of it all, it's extremely daft as well, this. It's definitely a 90s action movie through and through. Patrick Swayze, as an actor at this point, he had wanted to move away from his kind of heartthrob status that was generated by his role in Dirty Dancing. So he wanted to kind of branch out and um, pick more movies where he wasn't going to be this um, romantic lead every time. The year before, obviously, he'd done an incredible job in Ghost, which is another movie of his that I absolutely love. This was kind of like a step away from those type of roles and he did something a little bit more grittier I think in this part and something a bit more dynamic and interesting and again it's an incredible performance and goes to show how versatile an actor he is. This role is so contrasting from what we've just spoken about in Dirty Dancing um, and I'm completely here for it. Yeah, there's certainly an innocence about Johnny in Dirty Dancing. Even though he's been dealt a bad hand by life, he's still optimistic. I mean, Bodie is optimistic in a different way in this movie. He doesn't want to play the system either, but the way he fights back at the system is rather more extreme, getting his kicks by hitting the waves and jumping out of aircraft and robbing banks. Yeah, he's a complete adrenaline junkie. And I think that plays on Patrick Swayze in real life as well, because he enjoyed skydiving. And um, I believe the story goes that he really wanted to do his own stunts for this. And the filmmakers were like, no way, because we don't want anything bad to happen. So basically, like they filmed all the main bits they needed to and then allowed him at the very end of the shoot to actually skydive himself. So he got that opportunity. Yeah, so point break, it is a surfing term referring to when a wave breaks as it hits a point of land jutting out from the coastline. So that is the meaning behind the title. But it was going to go under some other titles as well. 
one of them was Johnny Utah. It was just going to be simply called that. And it was called that when Keanu Reeves joined the project. They then decided to change it to Riders on the Storm, which is based on the Doors song. But this was then changed because it had no relevance whatsoever to the plot. So Point Break seemed the more fitting title because it fitted in with the surfing theme and just made more sense than the other titles had. Yeah, and it also kind of sort of refers to the breaking point that every particular character has in this movie, specifically the rules that are set up around Johnny Utah and Bodhi and where they'll cross the line and, and what the consequences are of breaking those rules. Those other two titles are terrible. I mean, Johnny Utah's a silly character name. It's a dreadful title for a movie. Riders on the Storm, as you say, what the hell does that mean? It bears no relevance to what goes on there at all. I mean, yeah, there is a bit of a storm in it at one point, but you know that's towards the end of the movie. I mean, I think Point Break is by far the superior title of that clutch of them. I remember seeing this at the cinema and absolutely loving it. It is just a thrill ride from start to finish and it's directed brilliantly. The action sequences are all top-notch. The fact that the movie is chock-full of ridiculous situations and things that would never happen and characters with names you would never meet in real life and lines of dialogue that no human being has ever said in the history of the planet. And yet, very much like Dirty Dancing, this movie gets away with all of that because it's such a massive piece of entertainment. Well, it's just a juggernaut. It just keeps going and going and going. And you don't really have time to catch breath. So at the end, when you just think, well, that all that was cobblers, wasn't it? But you've just been entertained for two hours. And so you don't really mind. I mean, yeah, if you go back and pick holes in the plot, it's like, you know, the bank robberies, it's like, how do they get away with those bank robberies? It's ridiculous. But while you're in there, you don't care. This is the plot. This is what's going on. And you're wrapped up in what's going on around you. And you're invested in the characters and the action sequences and the chases and the shootouts are all brilliantly shot. And it's all put together by a director who knows exactly what she's doing. Catherine Bigelow is just one of the best directors on the planet and always makes brilliant looking, interesting movies. If you haven't seen Near Dark, which is probably Catherine Bigelow's masterpiece, in my opinion, you should go and rent it or buy it or steal it. Just do whatever you can to see Near Dark because it is hands down the best vampire movie ever made. And that's no word of a lie. I'm not exaggerating. I fucking love Near Dark. I think the Museum of Modern Art in New York has got that as a permanent exhibition in their collection. It's that good a movie that an art museum wants Near Dark in it. So go and watch that. Back to Point Break. Now, <laughs> again, Catherine Bigelow brings all of that style. She knows what to do with action. I mean, she's she's worked around people like James Cameron, so she is no stranger to big, loud action pieces. But even though, on the face of it, it's all very superficial, they still manage to inject a little bit of humour and a bit of humanity. And, yeah, it's not a particularly deep plot, but you do end up caring for quite a lot of the characters, even the bad guys have got their own specific 
traits. Yeah, they do rob banks, but they're not totally bad. I don't think. I don't think there's anybody in this movie really that's completely evil, apart from the sort of cartoony baddie surfers that Johnny Utah comes across about thirty minutes in. But even then, I mean, it's. I think this movie is kind of winking at you as it's doing everything as well. Yes, on one level, it's a thriller and a drama. But at the same time, you you can almost feel somebody behind the camera thinking like, are you buying all of this? Look what we're putting on the screen. Are you actually buying all of this? And And the weird thing is you are buying all of this because it's such a good movie. It definitely is. I was entertained from start to finish. It's a very spectacular action movie. There are sequences in it that completely take your breath away. The chase scene in particular, wow, like I was just like full on in suspense for that, completely on edge. It's such a pivotal moment in the movie. I don't think, I don't know if I want to say why if you haven't seen it. I don't know how much spoiler territory we're going to get into with this because I think once you know the reveal, it's like you're going to be looking for it throughout the movie. It's like it's one of those movies where it's so different when you, you're seeing it fresh and you don't mm. know anything, yeah. that, like you don't know what's coming. But once you know, so it'll be an interesting one to revisit for sure. I just really enjoyed it. As you say, it is ridiculous. It's just a crazy movie. Um, none of it is that plausible, but you're just going to be entertained throughout. And I think there was a lot of movies in the 90s like this where it was just, full-on action and you know it's just a bit mindless entertainment and I think it's just such a good movie and how it crafts that suspense and tension so you've got uh, the action element thriller element the character development is really really good in this like Bodie as a character is very complex he's like this spiritual surfer where he's um you know very connected and in, in tune with the waves and all that kind of thing and then there's something kind of really like something that really draws people to him. He's one of those people who's got such a presence. And I think that's where Keanu Reeves' character, Johnny, is kind of taken in and a bit mesmerized with him. So I think, yeah, this performance from Patrick Swayze is incredibly well done. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Yeah. And I think the casting of Keanu Reeves, I mean, Keanu Reeves got a lot of stick for the stuff he did in the 90s and they said oh, he was very wooden in things like Johnny Mnemonic and other stuff that he did. But I think it's good casting in this because I think there needs to be a certain level of naivety and he's not wooden in the sense that his performance is bad, but he's an FBI agent, so he's very straight-laced, to, well, to, at least to a certain extent, until he starts surfing and then they kind of that kind of wheedle out the sort of um, madman underneath the surface. But, yeah, I mean, you need somebody who's a little bit more wet behind the ears and to play off against the sort of more worldly-wise guy that's being portrayed by Patrick Swayze. I mean, elsewhere, I mean, the cast is really good all the way down. I mean, you've got Gary Busey as Keanu's partner, who's just completely crazy throughout the movie. I love Gary Busey in this movie. He, he is just... Is the anti-authority figure, but happens to have an FBI badge as well. He's just he's just a menace to himself and everybody about him, but he's fun in this movie. John C. McGinley, who of late has played slightly more anti-establishment figures, he's a very he's a very kind of by the book FBI supervisor who looks down on 
quite a few people and he's he's the one whose word goes and you think uh, well at some point one of his colleagues is just going to punch this guy out because he's so annoying not going to say whether somebody does punch him out before the end of the movie because that would be robbing the movie of some suspense i won't say whether or not it happens and then you've got um laurie petty who's i'm not even going to say token woman in this i mean it's a very testosterone driven movie at this point break but laurie petty holds her on she doesn't take any shit she's the one who gives keanu's character his first surfing lessons and she went on to do things like tank girl and and laurie petty's got this kind of sweet but spiky persona at the same time so her character is quite pivotal to what goes on in the plot as well without saying what that is i mean it is clearly a big budget studio movie i think largo entertainment did it um and i think 20th century fox distributed it maybe so there's there was a decent amount of money behind this but when the end result is as good as this it doesn't matter you know if the money's up there on the screen and it's a great movie yeah you know spend the money it's when you get stuff that's costing 200 million dollars and, and it's just a complete bore from start to finish that's the crime but here great script great director great cast brilliant action sequences where can you go wrong with this you can't definitely and going back to talking about keanu reeves's casting in particular at this point um he was kind of veering off from being like a teen actor and moving more into adult roles and i think this is the movie that really kind of put him into that like action hero uh, type role um and set the like sort of paved the way for future roles that he did end up um, taking obviously the matrix which is one of the like, most iconic for his career but he was you know relatively you know not that big at the time um and they were looking at either casting someone like val kilmer johnny depp matthew broderick or charlie sheen as johnny utah but i think it was catherine bigelow herself actually really wanted keanu reeves in the role and she really pushed for that uh, and I, I think he's brilliant in this film. But Patrick Swayze originally auditioned for the part of um, John Utah before being cast as Bodie. And I think, yeah, he would have done a good job, but I think he's just like excels at this character who's got more of an edge to him. I think it was more interesting role for Patrick Swayze to take. And I think they've got excellent chemistry in it. There's so much tension between them. It's it's just, you know, such a, a good kind of um, duo to watch on screen together. And I believe this wasn't their first movie together. They had made something in the 80s as well. So I believe it was called Young Blood, but fact check that one for me. Um, um, that goes for all the listeners as well. Yeah, I, vag- <laughs> I vaguely remember Young Blood and that. Yeah, I think you you are probably right there. Um, I'd, I'd have to go back and check. But uh, Val Kilmer as Johnny Utah, that would have been interesting. I think. I think Val Kilmer is too much of a forceful screen presence to be John Utah. I think he'd have been, I think you'd have been overwhelmed by Val Kilmer as Johnny Utah. I think you need to have somebody who's a little bit reticent and not not to overshadow Patrick Swayze's character. I think in some ways Val Kilmer and Patrick Swayze's characters would have possibly been too similar if they'd have cast him mm-hmm. as Johnny Utah. Matthew Broderick, that's interesting. I. I mean, not to cast any shade on Matthew Broderick, but can I see him as an action hero? I mean, possibly, but but would he have had the same presence in that role? I think I think out of the list of people that could have been there, I'm with Catherine Bigelow. Keanu Reeves is the one 
to play Johnny Utah because he's got that kind of innocent but also slightly cocky edge to him which sometimes brings about his downfall but usually gets him through. I do like the bromance that's going on between Johnny Utah and Birdie throughout the movie because they've obviously got a fair amount of respect for each other. They like hanging out together. The plot dictates that that relationship is put under some strain by the end of the movie. I think Point Break stands up really well. I mean, some movies from the early 90s really do not hold up at all well now. But having just seen it just the other day, I think this is still good. I mean, I think they they don't lean into the technology too much. It's very much a classic thriller. It's based on things like foot and car chases and shootouts, which people have been shooting for decades. So they haven't really leaned into what was specifically technologically available in the 90s, which, which helps it because apart from the odd you know thing on the screen, it really doesn't date. They've not tried to paint an FBI office where it's just full of technology and like oh look look at the latest thing we've got because obviously 30 years down the line if you've got a piece of technology from 91 you're going to look at it now and go oh my god did we ever use something like that but it sidesteps most of that and it's mostly focused on the action and characters which is what you want at the end of the day really cleverly put together on the face of it this just looks like a loud stupid action movie and you can take it as a loud, stupid action movie if you want to. It works extremely well as one of those. But there's something else under the surface. It's made with a lot more care than just, right, let's just smash this car into this car. Let's just have this guy fall through a window. Let's shoot this guy. No, no, there's something more going on underneath all of that. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so compelling. I completely agree with you there because I can give or take action movies, but this one, it has a lot more depth to it than you first expect. And, you know, as much as I love all the suspense and it, it really did put me on edge. I think it was just that relationship between the characters. So um, you've got, obviously, the dynamic between Swayze and Reeves, but then you've also got Laurie Petty's character and how she kind of um, comes into it, like with both of them as well. So it's just so interesting to watch and you're not quite sure where it's going to go because... Um, at the beginning of the movie, I, I sort of said, oh, I think this is what's going to happen. And I was completely wrong by the end of it. So I was glad that it surprised me as well. It wasn't as predictable as I was expecting. And it, it does, you know, take a lot of narrative risks as well. I think with the reveal of, you know, who the um, ex-presidents are. And I really like that idea. Like, you know, there's some sort of level of um, creepiness and like a bit of like purge, isn't it, with those masks as well. I think yeah. that, that adds to it, like, it's kind of scary, like, because these people are, like, completely anonymous. Everything just kind of goes to hell, because at first they are in a position where they're, they're not going to harm anybody. They're just going to frighten people um, just to get what they want, which is the cash. But things do take quite a dramatic edge later on in the film, so it just escalates and escalates. And, yeah, I just thought this was such an entertaining movie, and i definitely watch it again. I was surprised to um, discover that it was actually remade in 2015. Um, it that was. went up under the radar. Did you watch it? I went and saw the remake of Point Break. They've taken a few turns with the plot. It's a bunch of extreme sportsmen, basically, that the guy falls in with this time. So it's not just surfing. It's, it's all sorts of extreme sports this time. It's okay. 
that's all I'm going to say about the... Uh, it's all right. I think it doesn't hold a candle to the original. I don't think it's particularly terrible, but I think it doesn't have an ounce of the creativity that the original has. Even though they try to up the ante in terms of the action, it just seems that they're trying too hard. Whereas with Point Break, the action is very simply done. But because of the way they've shot it, you're almost on top of the action with everybody else. The foot chase through houses and back gardens, it's shot in such a handheld and kinetic way that you are actually with them chasing along. And things like, you know, at one point, doesn't a, doesn't a dog get thrown at him at one point? Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, it's just all these like little touches, all these little inventive features where there's a locked door and you would think, well, what's he going to try and do? And Keanu Reeves' character just doesn't think about it. He just crashes through the window into the room. He doesn't even try to unlock the door. And it's that craziness about this movie that's quite endearing. And it's it's just about a bunch of madmen, really, trying to push the limits. Of course, there is some ethical and moral considerations because there is eventually a price to be paid for pushing those limits a little bit too far. We won't tell you what those consequences are. Because if you haven't seen it, it's well worth staying around for. I mean, it's one of those movies that, again, I mean, like Dirty Dancing, I think it's going to find its audience pretty much whatever decade it's in. Yeah, some of the slang may have passed into the annals of history by a few decades' time. But the core of the plot, it's just a classic thriller action movie. It doesn't really step out of that comfort zone but what it does do is it just makes the best movie it possibly can with what it's got yeah it's an utterly great movie and interestingly i found out that the plot is very similar to the fast and the furious they've actually taken the same storyline which i did not know and i've never seen the fast and the furious film so maybe i should at least give the first one a go who knows let us know if you'd like me to and um, we could possibly cover it at some point there's definitely an element of it. And certainly, I think when I went to see The Fast and the Furious, there was a little bit of me that kind of thought, I've seen this before, and I think I know where I've seen this before. It doesn't slavishly rip it off, but it kind of takes the generic elements of kind of cop trying to infiltrate a specific type of society, and they get seduced by what's going on there. I don't think it's a carbon copy of Point Break, but I think there's a fairly massive nod to it as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. But I guess a lot of movies do kind of repeat each other's content. You know, there's only so many ideas in the world and uh, certain things sell. And, mm. you know, why why not capitalise on familiarity if it's going to bring the audience in? Absolutely. Point Break, again, like Dirty Dancing, has some very high scores. It's got a 7.3 out of 10 rating on IMDb and a 79% Rotten Tomatoes audience score, which is, again is very, very good. Yeah, very respectable numbers there. Totally justified as well. I think you'd have to be, well, you'd have to be some sort of curmudgeon to go into Point Break and not like at least something in the movie. Yeah, you can quibble about some of the dialogue and you can probably gripe about some of the ways that the plot develops but it is a fun movie and uh, yeah i mean i i I guess you can you can 
pull anything apart if you've got enough time. But would you want to pull Point Break apart? I mean, just sit there and enjoy it. It's it's not trying to change the world in terms of its worldview, and it's not going to have the impact of, like, say, a Stanley Kubrick movie. But that's not what it's there for. It's just there to deliver entertainment. And I still had a good time knowing what was coming. And it's two hours, so it's not... It's a fairly long-running movie. So you'd think, action movie, two hours, is it going to run out of steam? Actually, it doesn't. There's a lot going on there. And it doesn't feel like two hours. It's quite well-paced, so you never get bored in this movie. So actually, two hours is good because it kind of delivers enough, I think. So now we have to make a decision. Which is the better movie out of Dirty Dancing and Point Break? And which is the best Swayze performance? This is a tough one, so I'm going to let Darren reveal his choices first. This is really difficult. I mean, you would have thought, coming into this, you'd have thought, yeah. It's very, very close, because there's lots to commend both movies and both performances. So I think best performance, Dirty Dancing. I'm going to go with Dirty Dancing for the best performance, just by a, you know, the very slightest of margins, because I think... It shows his vulnerability off more than Point Break. And I think there's slightly more range there in Dirty Dancing. And it shows the promise that he ended up fulfilling in movies like Point Break. So I think as a pointer to where Patrick Swayze ended up, Dirty Dancing for the performance. Movie, I've just got a massive soft spot for Point Break. I love Catherine Bigelow's stuff, so... Not that Dirty Dancing isn't a fine movie anyway. I do think that there's definitely a lot to commend Dirty Dancing, but I'm just such a massive fan of Point Break that I can't really go against it. So sorry, Dirty Dancing, I'm going to have to vote Point Break. So I'm going to go in the opposite direction here. <laughs> For performance, I'm going to go with Point Break because I feel his portrayal of Bodie just absolutely blew me away because it showed so much range, in my opinion. I mean... His performance in Dirty Dancing is excellent, but I think because in that movie he's such a well-loved character, I think this one kind of pushed the limits a bit so he could do the kind of charming, charismatic edge in this, but he also had something a bit darker going on. So I think that I really like seeing that side of Patrick Swayze. But for movie, I'm going to have to go for Dirty Dancing only because it's the nostalgic factor it's one of my comfort movies, it's a feel-good movie, and I've seen it so many times, and I could watch it so many times more. So I could watch Point Break as well many times, and I, you know, it is a very strong movie, and I enjoyed it, and I think it would definitely be an entertaining watch if I did go back to it. But it's just my kind of connection to Dirty Dancing that's swaying me more that way. So, yeah, what did you all think? We'd love to know your opinions in the comments and you can also let us know other movies off Patrick Swayze that you did enjoy as well. So let us know all your favourites. Just to close off, if you haven't already, I recommend reading Patrick Swayze's autobiography, Time of My Life, which he co-wrote with his wife. It's a fantastic read and gives an in-depth insight into his whole career and personal life as well. And there was a recent documentary based on that book on Channel 5 as well. If it's still up there, go and check that out as well. Because, um, yeah, he's got such an interesting life story. And as I say, he was a fantastic actor, an incredible dancer, 
and singer as well because um we forgot to mention she's like the wind which we is did. a great song yes we did yeah we never we we talked about date dancing and never mentioned the patrick swersey song that was that was a bit uh, remiss of us so at least we've we've mentioned it at the end it is a beautiful song um so i highly recommend you listen to that and think of patrick swayze for the legend that he was and I just wish he was still here today because I would have loved to have seen what directions his career would have gone in because he made so many diverse movies. And as I say, it's just he's such a loss to the film world. Absolutely. We may have gone on a little bit more than we usually do in our face off. We've talked at quite great length about both movies, but, you know, why not? I mean, Patrick Swayze, great actor, and it's been really enjoyable to talk about his films. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 38 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please follow us on our social media platforms. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. So next week, episode 39, what are we going to do? As we've done a face-off and we quite enjoyed this week's face-off, why not do another one? Next week, we're going to have totally different performer, totally different films. Who's it going to be? It's going to be Sandra Bullock. And we will be looking at Speed, because clearly we can't get enough of Keanu Reeves as well. And another film that I haven't revisited for many, many years, um, which I'm intrigued to see because it's got a bit of an odd plot to it, which is While You Were Sleeping. Now that's a double bill and a half. Can't wait to get stuck into those. Until then, stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean. <laughs>